Chapter 8. Remember Lot. He lingered. Genesis 19, 16. Who is this man who lingered? It was Lot, the nephew of faithful Abraham, who lingered. When did he linger? He lingered on the very morning Sodom was to be destroyed. Where did he linger? He lingered within the walls of Sodom itself. And before whom did he linger? He lingered under the eyes of the two angels who were sent to bring him out of the city. The words are solemn and full of food for thought. I trust they will make you think. Perhaps they are the very words your soul needs. The voice of the Lord Jesus commands you to remember Lot's wife. Luke 17:32. Today the voice of one of his ministers invites you to remember Lot. So let me show you what Lot was, what the text tells us about him, what reasons may explain why he waited, and what resulted from his lingering. Lot was righteous. So what was Lot himself? This is a most important point, and if I don't talk about it, the class of professing Christians who perhaps need most to hear this teaching will miss its importance. After reading or listening to this book, you might say, Ah, Lot was a poor, dark creature, an unconverted man, a child of this world, no wonder he lingered. But listen to what I say. Lot was nothing of the kind. Lot was a true believer, a real child of God, a justified soul, a righteous man. Do you have grace in your heart? So did Lot. Do you have the hope of salvation? So did Lot. Are you a new creature? So was Lot. Are you a traveller in the narrow way that leads to life? So was Lot. This is not just my personal opinion, a mere whim unsupported by Scripture. I don't want you to believe it merely because I say it. The Holy Spirit has placed the matter beyond dispute by calling him just and righteous, 2 Peter 2, 7-8, and has given us evidence of the grace that was in him. One proof is that he lived in a wicked place, seeing and hearing evil all around him. 2 Peter 2, 8. Yet was not wicked himself. To be a Daniel in Babylon, an Obadiah in Ahab's house, 1 Kings 18, 3, an Abijah in Jeroboam's family, 1 Kings 14, 13, a saint in Nero's court, or a righteous man in Sodom. One must have the grace of God. Another evidence is that the text says that he vexed his righteous soul with the unlawful deeds of those around him. 2 Peter 2 8. Emphasis added. He was wounded, grieved, pained, and hurt at the sight of sin. This was similar to how David felt, who said, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved, because they kept not thy word. Psalm 119, 158. And who said, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Psalm 119, 136. Nothing can account for this except the grace of God. Another evidence is that he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the unlawful deeds he saw. 2 Peter 2, 8, emphasis added. 
He did not eventually become cool or even lukewarm about sin, as many do. Familiarity and habit did not take off the fine edge of his feelings, as is too often the case. Many are shocked and startled at the first sight of wickedness, yet they become so accustomed to it that they view it with comparative unconcern. This is especially true with those who live in great cities. But it was not so with Lot, and this is a great sign of the reality of his grace. Lot was a just and righteous man, a man sealed and stamped as an heir of heaven by the Holy Spirit himself. Listener, before you move on, Remember that a true Christian may have many blemishes, defects, and infirmities, yet still be a true Christian. You do not despise gold because it is mixed with much dross. You must not undervalue grace because it is accompanied by much corruption. Listen on, and you will find that Lot paid dearly for his lingering. But as you listen, don't forget that Lot was a child of God. Lot lingered. Now let us move to the second thing I spoke of. What does the text tell us about Lot's behavior? The words are curious and astounding. He lingered. The more you consider the time and circumstances, the more perplexing you will think them. Lot knew the awful condition of the city in which he stood. The cry of its abomination had waxen great before the face of the Lord. Genesis 19:13. Yet he lingered. Lot knew the fearful judgment coming down on all within its walls. The angels had said plainly, The Lord hath sent us to destroy it. Genesis 19:13. Yet he lingered. Lot knew that God was a God who always kept his word, and if he said he would do something, he would do it. He could hardly have been Abraham's nephew and lived with him a long time and not been aware of this. Yet he lingered. Lot believed there was danger. He went to his sons-in-law and warned them to flee. Up, he said, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Genesis 19:14. Yet he lingered. Lot saw the angels of God standing by waiting for him and his family to leave. He heard the voice of those ministers of wrath ringing in his ears to hurry him. Scripture, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Genesis 19:15. Yet he lingered. He was slow when he should have been quick, backward when he should have been forward, dawdling when he should have been rushing, loitering when he should have been hurrying, and cold when he should have been hot. It is beyond strange. It seems unbelievable. It appears too preposterous to be true. But the Spirit wrote it down for our learning. Yet many of the Lord Jesus Christ's people are very much like Lot. Pay attention to what I say. I say it again so that there may be no mistake about my meaning. I have shown you that Lot lingered, and I say that there are many Christian men and Christian women today who are very much like Lot. There are many real children of God who appear to know far more than they live up to, and see far more than they practice, but they continue to live in this state for many years. It's amazing that they go as far as they do, but go no further. 
They acknowledge Christ as the head and love the truth. They like sound preaching and assent to every article of the gospel doctrine when they hear it. But still, there is an indescribable something that is not satisfactory about them. They are constantly doing things that fall short of the expectations of their ministers and of more advanced Christian friends. It's incredible that they think as they do, yet stand still. They believe in heaven, yet seem to only faintly long for it, and they believe in hell, yet seem to fear it very little. They love the Lord Jesus, but the work they do for him is small. They hate the devil, but it often seems they tempt him to come to them. They know the time is short, but they live as if it were long. They know they have a battle to fight, yet one might think they were at peace. They know they have a race to run, yet they often look like people sitting still. They know the judge is at the door and there is wrath to come, yet they appear half asleep. It's astonishing that they are what they are, but are nothing more. What should we say of these people? They often puzzle godly friends and relatives. They often cause great anxiety. They often cause great doubts and questions of heart, but they may be classed under one sweeping description. They are all brothers and sisters of Lot. They linger. These people get the notion into their minds that it's impossible for all believers to be very holy and very spiritual. They admit that true holiness is a beautiful thing. They like to read about it in books and even to see it occasionally in others. But they don't think that all are meant to aim at so high a standard. At any rate, they seem to make up their minds that it's beyond their reach. They get in their heads false ideas of love, as they call it. They want to please everyone and everybody and be agreeable to all, but they forget that they ought to first be sure that they please God. These people dread sacrifices and shrink back from self-denial. They never appear able to apply our Lord's command to cut off the right hand and pluck out the right eye. Matthew 5:29-30. They spend their lives trying to make the gate wider and the cross lighter, but they never succeed. They are always trying to keep in with the world. They ingeniously discover reasons for not decisively separating, and they frame plausible excuses for attending questionable amusements and keeping up questionable friendships. One day they may attend a Bible study, the next day they go to a nightclub. They work constantly to persuade themselves that to mingle just a little with worldly people on their own ground does good. But in their case, it is very clear they do no good and only get harm. These people cannot find it in their hearts to quarrel with their besetting compulsive sin. Hebrews 12, 1. Whether it's laziness, idleness, anger, pride, selfishness, impatience, or whatever it may be, they allow it to remain a tolerably quiet and undisturbed tenant in their hearts. They say it's due to their health, their temperaments, the way they're made, their trials, and their personality. Their father, mother, or grandmother was the same way, and they are sure they cannot help it. And when you meet them a year later, you hear the same excuse. But all of it may be summed up in one single sentence. They are the brothers and sisters of Lot. They linger. If you are a lingering soul, you're not happy. You know you're not. It would be strange indeed if you were. 
Lingering is the sure destruction of a happy Christian. A lingerer's conscience forbids him to enjoy inward peace. Perhaps at one time you did run well, but you have left your first love. You have never felt the same comfort since, and you never will until you return to your first works. Revelation 2 5. Like Peter, when the Lord Jesus was taken prisoner, you are following the Lord afar off. Matthew 26 58. And, like him, you will find the way unpleasant and hard. Look at Lot. Learn from his story. Consider his lingering and be wise. Why did Lot linger? Why did Lot hesitate? What were his reasons for lingering as he did? This is a question of great importance, and I ask that you give serious attention to it. To know the root of a disease is one step toward a remedy. He that is forewarned is forearmed. Do you feel secure and have no fear of lingering yourself? Then listen while I tell you a few passages in Lot's story. If you do as he did, it will be a miracle if you don't eventually end up in the same state of soul. One thing I observe is that he made a wrong choice early in life. There was a time when Abraham and Lot lived together. They both became rich and could no longer live together. When they resolved to part company, Abraham, who was the elder of the two, in the true spirit of humility and courtesy, gave Lot his choice of the country. Scripture, If thou, he said, wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or, if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Genesis 13, 9. What did Lot do? We are told he saw that the plain of Jordan near Sodom was rich, fertile, and well watered. It was full of pastures and was a good land for cattle. He had large flocks and herds, and it perfectly suited his needs. This was the land he chose for a residence simply because it was a rich, well watered land. It was near the town of Sodom, but he didn't care about that. The men of Sodom, who would be his neighbors, were wicked, but it didn't matter. They were exceedingly sinful before God, but it made no difference to him. The pasture was rich, the land was good, he wanted this country for his flocks and herds, and before that argument, all questions and doubts, if indeed he had any, went down at once. He chose by sight and not by faith. He didn't ask God for counsel to preserve him from mistakes. He looked to the things of time and not of eternity. He thought of his worldly profit and not of his soul. He considered only what would help him in this life. He forgot the serious business of the life to come. This was a bad beginning. But I also see that Lot mixed with sinners when there was no reason for his doing so. We are first told that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Genesis 13, 12. This, as I have already shown, was a great mistake. But the next time Lot is mentioned, we find him actually living in Sodom itself. The scripture says expressly that he dwelt in Sodom. Genesis 14, 12. He had left his tents and abandoned the country. He occupied a house in the very streets of that wicked town. Scripture does not tell us the reasons for this move. We're not aware of any occasion that could have required it. We are sure there was no command of God. 
Perhaps his wife liked the town better than the country for the sake of society. It's plain she had no grace herself. Perhaps she persuaded Lot that it was necessary for the education of their daughters. Perhaps the daughters begged to live in the town for the sake of lively company. They were evidently frivolous young women. Perhaps Lot chose it himself in order to capitalize on his flocks and herds. Men never lack reasons to confirm their wills. But one thing is very clear Lot lived in the midst of Sodom without good cause. Listener, when a child of God does these two things I have named, you should not be surprised if you later hear unfavorable accounts about his soul. Do not be astonished if he becomes deaf to the warning voice of affliction, as Lot was, Genesis 14, 12, and becomes a lingerer in the day of trial and danger, as Lot did. There is no surer way to damage your own spirituality and go backward in your spiritual concerns than to make a wrong choice, an unscriptural choice, in life and settle down unnecessarily in the midst of worldly people. This is the way to make the pulse of your soul beat feebly and sluggishly. This is the way to make the edge of your feeling about sin become blunt and dull. This is the way to dim the eyes of your spiritual discernment until you can scarcely distinguish good from evil and stumble as you walk. This is the way to bring a moral paralysis on your feet and limbs and make you go tottering and trembling along the road to Zion, as if even the grasshopper was a burden. This is the way to betray yourself to your worst enemy, to give the devil the advantage in the battle, to tie your arms while fighting, to bind your legs while running, to dry up the sources of your strength, to cripple your own energies, and to cut off your own hair like Samson and give yourself into the hands of the Philistines. Put out your own eyes, grind at the mill, and become a slave. Wake up and pay attention to what I am saying. Get these things settled in your mind. Do not forget them. Think on them in the morning. Remember them at night. Let them sink down deeply into your heart. If you want to be safe from lingering, then beware of needless mingling with worldly people. Beware of Lot's choice. If you don't want to settle down into a dry, dull, sleepy, idle, barren, heavy, carnal, ignorant, and apathetic state of soul, then do not make Lot's choice. Remember this when choosing a home or residence. It's not enough that the house is comfortable, the situation good, the air fine, the neighborhood pleasant, the expenses low, and the living cheap. There are other things to be considered. You must think of your immortal soul. Will the house help you toward heaven or hell? Is the gospel preached within easy distance? Is Christ crucified within reach of your door? Is there a real man of God near who will watch over your soul? I charge you, if you love life, to not overlook this. Beware of Lot's choice. Remember this when choosing a calling, a place, or a profession in life. It's not enough that the salary is high, the wages good, the labor light, the advantages numerous, and the prospects of advancing most favorable. Think of your soul, your immortal soul. Will it be fed or starved? Will it prosper or be pulled back? I beg you, by the mercies of God, to be careful about what you do. Do not make a rash decision. Look at the position in every light, 
in the light of God as well as in the light of the world. Even gold may cost too much. Beware of Lot's choice. Remember this when choosing a husband or a wife if you are unmarried. It's not enough that your eye is pleased, that your tastes are met, that your minds find support, that there is warmth and love, and that there is a comfortable home life. More is needed. There is a life still to come. Think of your soul, your immortal soul. Will it be helped upward or dragged downward by the union you are planning? Will it be made more heavenly or more earthly, drawn nearer to Christ or to the world? Will its love for Christ grow in vigor or will it decay? I pray you, by all your hopes of glory, allow this to enter into your calculations. Think, as old Baxter said, and think and think and think again before you commit yourself. Footnote Richard Baxter, 1615 to 1691, was a Puritan poet, pastor, and theologian. Be ye not unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6 14. Matrimony is nowhere named among the means of conversion. Remember Lot's choice. Remember this if you are ever offered a job that requires you to work on Sunday. It's not enough to have good pay, regular employment, the confidence of the directors, and the best chance of rising to a higher post. These things are all well and good, but they are not everything. How will your soul fare if you serve a company that works on Sunday? What day in the week will you have for God and eternity? What opportunities will you have for hearing the gospel preached? I solemnly warn you to consider this. It will profit you nothing to fill your bank account if you bring emptiness and poverty on your soul. Beware of selling your Sabbath for the sake of a good job. Beware of Lot's choice. You may perhaps think a believer doesn't need to fear, he's a sheep of Christ. He will never die. He cannot come to much harm. It cannot be that such small matters can be of great importance. Well, you may think so, but I warn you, if you neglect these small matters, your soul will never prosper. A true believer will certainly not be cast away, even though he lingers. But if he does linger, it is vain to imagine that his religion will thrive. Grace is a tender plant. Unless you cherish it and nurse it well, it will soon become sickly in this evil world. It may droop, even if it cannot die. The brightest gold will soon become dim when exposed to a damp atmosphere. The hottest iron will soon become cold. It requires pain and toil to bring it to a red heat. It requires nothing but leaving it alone or a little cold water to become black and hard. You may be an earnest, zealous Christian now. You may feel like David in his prosperity, I shall never be moved. Psalm 36 but don't be deceived. You only have to walk in Lot's steps and make Lot's choice, and you will soon come to Lot's state of soul. If you allow yourself to do as he did and presume to act as he acted, be very sure that you will soon discover you have become a wretched lingerer like him. You will find, like Samson, that the presence of the Lord is no longer with you. You will prove to be, to your own shame, an undecided, hesitating person in the day of trial. 
A cancer will come on your faith and eat out its vitality without your knowing it. Disease will come on your spiritual strength and imperceptibly waste it away. And at last you will wake up to find your hands hardly able to do the Lord's work, your feet hardly able to carry you along the Lord's way, and your faith no bigger than a grain of mustard seed. And perhaps this will happen at some turning point in your life, at a time when the enemy is coming in like a flood and your need is the greatest. If you want to avoid becoming a lingerer in Christianity, consider these things and beware of doing what Lot did. The Fruit of Lot's Hesitation What were the results of Lot's lingering? What fruit did it bear? I don't want to skip over this point for many reasons, especially in the present day. There are many who will feel inclined to say, After all, Lot was saved. He was justified. He got to heaven. I want no more than that. If I just get to heaven, I'll be content. If this is the thought of your heart, listen to me just a little longer. I will show you one or two things in Lot's story that deserve attention and may perhaps convince you to change your mind. I think it's very important to stay on this subject. I will always contend that eminent holiness and eminent usefulness are most closely connected, that happiness and following the Lord fully go side by side, and that if believers linger, they should not expect to be useful in their day and generation or to enjoy great comfort and peace in believing. For one thing, notice that Lot did no good among the inhabitants of Sodom. Lot lived in Sodom many years. No doubt he had many precious opportunities to speak of the things of God and to turn souls away from sin. But Lot seems to have had no effect at all. He appears to have had no weight or influence with the people who lived around him. He possessed none of that respect and reverence that even the men of the world will frequently concede to a bright servant of God. Not one righteous person could be found in all of Sodom outside the walls of Lot's home. Not one of his neighbors believed his testimony. Not one of his acquaintances honored the Lord when he worshipped. Not one of his servants served his master's God. Not one of all the people from every quarter. Genesis 19.4, cared at all for his opinion when he tried to restrain their wickedness. Scripture, This one fellow came in to sojourn, they said, and he will needs be a judge. Genesis 19.9. His life carried no weight. His words were not listened to. His religion drew no one. And truly, I'm not surprised. As a general rule, Lingering souls do no good to the world and bring no credit to God's cause. Their salt has too little flavor to season the corruption around them. They are not letters of Christ that all can know and read. 2 Corinthians 3 2. There is nothing magnetic, attractive, or Christ reflecting about their ways. Remember this. Another thing to notice is that Lot helped no family on toward heaven. Scripture does not tell us how large his family was, but we do know he had a wife and at least two daughters in the day he was called out of Sodom. But whether Lot's family was large or small, one thing is perfectly clear. There was not one among them all that feared God. When he went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, 
Genesis 19:14, and warned them to flee from the coming judgment, we are told that to them he seemed as one that mocked. Genesis 19:14. What fearful words those are! It was as good as saying, "Who cares about anything you say?" As long as the world stands, those words will be a painful proof of the contempt held for a lingerer in Christianity. What about Lot's wife? She left the city in his company, but she didn't go far. She did not have faith to see the need of such a speedy flight. She left her heart in Sodom when she began to flee. She looked back from behind her husband in spite of the plainest command not to do so. Genesis 19:17 and was at once turned into a pillar of salt. What about Lot's two daughters? They escaped, but only to do the devil's work. They became their father's tempters to wickedness and led him to commit the foulest of sins. Genesis 19:30-38. In short, Lot stood alone in his family. He was not the means of keeping one soul back from the gates of hell. And I'm not surprised. Lingering souls are seen through by their own families, and when seen through, they are despised. Their nearest relatives understand inconsistency if they understand nothing else in religion. They draw the sad but natural conclusion that if these lingering souls believed all they professed to believe, then they would not behave as they do. Lingering parents seldom have godly children. The eye of the child absorbs far more than the ear. A child will always observe what you do much more than what you say. Remember this. Notice a third thing. Lot left no evidence behind him when he died. We know very little about Lot after his flight from Sodom, and what we do know is unsatisfactory. His pleading for Zoar because it was a little city, Genesis 19:20. His departure from Zoar afterward, and his conduct in the cave all tell the same story. All show the weakness of the grace that was in him, and how low was the condition of soul into which he had fallen. We don't know how long he lived after his escape. We don't know where, when, or how he died, if he saw Abraham again, what he said, or what he thought. These are all hidden things. We are told of the last moments of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but not one word about Lot. Oh, what a gloomy deathbed the deathbed of Lot must have been! Scripture appears to draw a veil around him on purpose. There's a painful silence about his end days. He seems to go out like a fading lamp and leave a bad taste behind him. If we had not been specially told in the New Testament that Lot was just, and righteous, I truly believe we would have doubted if Lot was a saved soul at all. But I am not surprised at his sad end. Lingering believers will generally reap as they have sown. Their lingering often meets them when their spirit is departing. They have little peace at the end. They reach heaven, to be sure, but they reach it in darkness and storm. They are saved, but saved so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15. Consider these three things I've just mentioned. Don't misunderstand my meaning. It's amazing to see how readily people grab at the least excuse for misunderstanding the things that concern their souls. 
I'm not saying that believers who do not linger will, as a matter of course, be great instruments of usefulness to the world. Noah preached for a hundred twenty years, and no one believed him. Even the Lord Jesus was not esteemed by the Jews, his own people. Isaiah 53, 3. Nor am I saying that believers who do not linger will, as a matter of course, be the means of converting their families and friends. Many of David's children were ungodly. The Lord Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. John 7, 5. But I do say it is almost impossible not to see a connection between Lot's evil choice and his lingering, and between his lingering and his unprofitability to his family and the world. I believe the Spirit meant for us to see it. I believe the Spirit meant to make it a beacon to all professing Christians, and I'm sure the lessons I've tried to draw from the whole story deserve serious reflection. Let me speak a few parting words to all who read or listen to this book, especially to all who call themselves believers in Christ. I have no wish to make your hearts sad. I don't want to give you a gloomy view of the Christian path. My only objective is to give you friendly warnings. I desire your peace and comfort. I want to see you happy as well as safe, and joyful as well as justified. I speak for your good. You live in a time when a lingering, lot-like religion abounds. The stream of professing faith is far broader than it once was, but far less deep in many places. A certain kind of Christianity is almost fashionable now. To belong to some group in the church and show a zeal for its interests, to talk about the leading controversies of the day, to buy popular religious books as fast as they come out and lay them on your table, to attend meetings and seminars, to join religious societies, and to discuss the merits of preachers. All these are now comparatively easy and common achievements. They no longer make a person noteworthy. They require little or no sacrifice. They carry no cross. But to walk closely with God, to be really spiritually minded, to behave like strangers and pilgrims, to be distinct from the world in your use of time, conversation, amusements, and in dress, to bear a faithful witness for Christ in all places, to leave a taste of our Master in every society, to be prayerful, humble, unselfish, and meek, to be jealously afraid of sin, and tremblingly alive to our danger from the world, these are still rare things. They are not common among those who are called true Christians and, worst of all, the absence of them is not felt and mourned, as it should be. I am giving you good counsel today. Do not turn from it. Do not be angry with me for speaking plainly. Diligently make your calling and election sure. Don't be slothful, careless, or content with just a small measure of grace. Don't be satisfied with being a little better than the world. I sincerely warn you to not attempt doing what can never be done, serving Christ while keeping in with the world. I beg you, I charge you, and I exhort you, by all your hopes of heaven and desires of glory, do not be a lingering soul. Do you desire to know what the times demand, the shaking of nations, the uprooting of ancient things, the overturning of kingdoms, the stir and restlessness of men's minds. They all say, 
Christian, do not linger. Do you want to be found ready for Christ at His second appearing, your loins girded, your lamp burning, yourself bold and prepared to meet Him? Luke 12:35. Then do not linger. Do you want to enjoy detectable comfort in your Christianity? Feel the witness of the Spirit within you? Romans 8:16. Know in whom you have believed? 2 Timothy 1:12. And not be a gloomy and melancholy Christian? Then do not linger. Do you want to enjoy a strong assurance of your own salvation in the time of illness and death? Do you want to see with the eye of faith heaven opening and Jesus rising to receive you? Then do not linger. Do you desire to leave convincing evidence behind you when you are gone? Would you like us to lay you in the grave with comforting hope and talk of your state after death without a doubt? Then do not linger. Do you want to be useful to the world in your day and generation? Do you want to lead people from sin to Christ and make your master's cause beautiful in their eyes? Then do not linger. Do you desire to help your children, family, and friends toward heaven and make them say, We want to go with you and not make them unbelievers and despisers of Christianity? Then do not linger. Do you desire a great crown in the day of Christ's appearing, and to not be the least and smallest star in glory, or the last and lowest in the kingdom of God? Then do not linger. Oh, do not linger. Time does not, death does not, judgment does not, the devil does not, and the world does not. Do not let the children of God linger either. Are you a lingerer? Has your heart felt heavy and your conscience wounded while you have been listening to these pages? Does something within you whisper, He's talking about me? Listen to what I'm saying. How is your soul? If you are a lingerer, you must go to Christ at once and be cured. You must use the old remedy. You must bathe in the old fountain. You must turn to Christ and be healed. Do this at once. Don't think for a moment that your case is beyond hope. Even though you have been living in a dry and heavy state of soul a long time, there is still hope of revival. Is not the Lord Jesus Christ an appointed physician for the soul? Did he not cure every form of disease? Did he not cast out every kind of devil? Did he not raise poor backsliding Peter and put a new song in his mouth? Oh, do not doubt, but earnestly believe that he will revive his work in you. Turn from lingering, confess your foolishness, and come at once to Christ. Blessed are the words of the prophet. Scripture, only acknowledge thine iniquity. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Jeremiah 3, 13, 22. Remember the souls of others as well as your own. If at any time you see any brother or sister lingering, try to awaken them, try to arouse them, try to stir them up. Let us all exhort one another as we have opportunity. Hebrews 3.13 Provoke each other unto love and to good works. Hebrews 10.24
Do not be afraid to say to each other, Brother or sister, have you forgotten Lot? Awake, remember Lot. Awake and linger no more.